Broadcasting from the commodity capital of the world, Zurich, Switzerland, this is Insider's Guide to Energy. This edition to Insider's Guide to Energy is brought to you by Fidectus. Go to www.fidectus.com for more information. Insider's Guide to Energy. I'm your host, Chris Sass, and with me as always is co-host, Johan Oberg. Johan, how's it going today? Sunny greetings from Switzerland. Finally, the summer's here and we're uh, approaching uh, a new H2. Eager to go, both on the podcast and uh, my day-to-day job. How you Uh, been doing? I've been enjoying the one week of summer we're having this year in Switzerland. Uh, It's the first time I don't think I've seen rain in 24 hours. It's been a great summer so far for 24 hours. Um, you know, as my kids start school next week, I, I consider it the end of summer. So it, it's a bit, bit of a short summer this year. Uh, I'm longing for, for a real summer. So, um, but what, what I am excited about is, is getting the podcast out this week, um, and, and doing the show prep, uh, had a lot of fun reading about our guest, uh, figuring out, you know, somebody that saw a problem or a potential problem coming in, took his passion, ran with it and started a company to go solve it. And, you know, what, what's interesting is so many of us take for granted that we want sustainable energy and renewable. And we, we, we hear all these government initiatives across whichever country you're in, whether it's, you know, a current one from the Biden administration, whether it's the EU commission saying, you know, we, we have to do certain things. But it, it, it all it's all predicated on having renewable energy and scale. And how do you get these projects out there at the rate so that 2030, 2050, and these, these dates sound far away, but they're not. How do we achieve that goal? And, and that's what I hope our guest shares a little bit with us today. I don't know, Johan, what, what, what are you thinking? No, I, I agree. And I, I, you're spot on. I think we're talking about 2025, 2030, even 2040. And, and, and I think in, in energy years, it's not like dog years. It's It goes quick. Uh, I think we're going to be there much quicker than we think. And this is a big tanker to turn around. So I think that's clear for sure. But I think it's interesting, you know, on the show, we've had guests now where we're up to a 30 plus show uh, shows and we've had anything from lobbyists in terms of the politicians. We have the financial part, the investment part. Uh, but we've also touched, uh, obviously, on sustainability, uh, which will be interesting to, to hear more from. But what I am also very interesting to hear from our guests today is basically two things. One is how, how do we apply new technologies into this one? Where does they fit? Is it just buzzwords or are they really being used and what do they define? And the second part, which would be interesting to see is also in the investment part. Uh, you know, we, we are looking at maybe a new generation of people in the industry that are encouraging companies to grow even outside of the corporations uh, with different kind of summits, etc. So we're um, really looking forward to it. We'll see if he agrees. Well, we'll find out. As always, you and I have our, our opinions. We're, we're not afraid to state them and be blatantly correct or blatantly wrong, whichever the case might be. But rather than guessing, let's let's invite our guest to the show and, and, and find out more about his background. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce Philip Bernier. Philip is CEO of Enion, 
Philip, welcome to the program. Thanks, guys. Uh, it's good to be here, and uh, appreciate you having me. Well, we're, we're as you can tell, we're anticipating a great show. We're we're looking forward to it. Hopefully, the internet hasn't steered us wrong, and in our pre pre game uh, has us on track of what you do. But before we get into exactly what that is, maybe just a small background about yourself for our audience, so our listeners know who you are and what what you do from your perspective. Sure thing. So, um, well, as you can hear, uh, I'm an American, but I'm also an expat. So I've been living in the UK for about the last uh, 15 years. And um, I came to Scotland uh, back in 2009 uh, as an academic. So uh, my original uh, entry into the renewable energy sector was uh, studying geopolitics and and being uh, an academic researcher in that field. And uh, interestingly, around that time, back in 2009, um, Scotland uh, had the most ambitious renewable energy electrification uh, program in the world. They had aimed to go 100% renewable by 2030, I believe it was at the time. Uh, there was a huge buzz um, in Scotland around uh, you know, trying to make Scotland a, a renewable energy powerhouse on the world stage and you know, there are potential implications for, for the UK as a whole and for Europe. And so um, I got very much involved in, in all of that and uh, ended up getting pretty distracted from my PhD, uh, started a couple of project development businesses, uh, and then went into tech. Uh, about three years ago, and started this company to try and accelerate and solve some of the pain points that I experienced as a developer. So what kind of pain points are you talking about? Um, I I think I have some idea from the pre-show of what what we might go to, but probably better to to hear it from you. So you you were doing some project kind of work and you saw hurdles perhaps. So what are they? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so project development is a lot of fun, firstly. Uh, project developers are, are jacks of all trades. Uh, they're renaissance people. They have to balance uh, competing interests from different stakeholders with different agendas. Uh, they have to be uh, financiers. They have to be entrepreneurs. They have to be technologists. So uh, the really fun thing about being a project developer is you get to speak every day with lots of different kinds of people and, and you, know, you get to build coalitions to bring projects forward. Um, so that's the fun part. Um, the downside, of course, and we're talking about project development at commercial scale, um, is that projects move very slowly. Um, and there's a lot of uncertainty and a lot of risk involved uh, at the early stages of project design. Um, so um, one of the, the big pains that project developers experience uh, has to do with uncertainty around grid connection. Um, you know, you can find a, a great landowner that you can partner with, or you can find a great resource, you know, a very windy or very sunny part. Uh, of the land area that you're looking at and it can be you know there can be lots of other projects in the surrounding area that makes it look like it's a go but then uh, you know figuring out what the grid situation is going to be like is always a a difficult challenge and then uh, on top of that you know there's a lot of uncertainty around uh, whether or not a project will get planning consent Uh, if a local community might oppose a project for some reason you need to figure that out you need to know who you're dealing with on the land side Um, you know are they a bankable partner have they had similar uh, you know have they done previous deals in the past that they've that they've uh, you know been an active participant and a champion of? So there's a, there's a lot of um, uh, political risk uh, and technical risk involved in in project development um, that makes projects move very slowly. So typical project uh, commercial wind farm can take up to seven or eight years in development, um, even though it might only take six months to construct. Um, and of course, that's a really long time and um, you know, we don't have time to spare if we're going to meet the the uh, ambition set forward by the Paris Climate Accords. 
So in terms of um, in terms of um, these projects uh, and the scope of the projects, I think uh, it's pretty clear. It's it's not small projects. There's a multiple of, of stakeholders involved. Uh, who do you contact? Who is your main uh, main guy, so to speak? Are you uh, who hires you? So uh, in my career as a developer, uh, I'm in tech now, so we sell software. But in my in my career as a developer, um, you know, we tried to identify landowners using data. Um, we tried to uh, basically take a data driven approach to to finding out good areas to do projects. Um, the big gap for developers it doesn't matter if you're working for a small or a large corporate. Um, the big challenge is that uh, you typically don't own the land where the site's being developed. So, um, you know, you need to have some kind of engagement with the, the person or, co- or corporation that owns that land. Um, and in, in the UK, a lot of times uh, landowners are, uh, are difficult to identify. Um, they have different structures that, that they use to manage uh, to manage operations on the on the property. This can be, you know, trust, development trusts or um they can be uh, private companies with their own revenue streams and their own uh, their own business plans. Um, so you know, there's a when it comes to doing uh, development at scale, uh, you need to know who owns the land. Uh, you know where other projects are going on. Are those projects yielding competitively? Uh, who's investing in those projects? Are they getting a bankable grid connection date? There's a lot of factors that go into kind of developing your intelligent filter. You know, separating uh, your your you're 20% from the 80% of projects that will yield uh, profitable results for your for your business. And so you're a developer, you, you've got the history of having done that. And, and then you, you decided somewhere along the way to transition to selling software, as you said. So you know, you're solving a problem, I suppose. So tell us about the transition. What, what What's changed? So I, I can understand that you know that it was hard to find the landowners, and and there was a lot of uncertainty from what you've described. I mean, these are the, the nuggets I've picked up from the conversation so far. So, how does soft, software help, or how does that turn into something that software can fix? It's a good question. So, um, we started any in about four years ago. Uh, myself, my co-founder Varun Sharma, who was formerly with Bbox, uh, joined me, and we built a. A group of uh, people from software engineering backgrounds, uh, investment backgrounds, and development backgrounds, and renewables to try and tackle this problem. Um, the very first thing we that we did uh, was we built a database. So we started building a database, um, and that database today has grown to be what is, to our knowledge, the the most complete uh, power networks data set in the world. Um, we currently have uh, data for uh, grid maps um, and power plants in 195 countries. Um, so we started with the data set. And what that data set enables you to do as a developer is it makes the, the power network visible really for the first time. I mean, when, you're, when you, you don't have this data, um, then the, the network is invisible to you. So uh, it's, hard to, it's hard to make interventions in a system if you can't see it. You know, it's almost like a doctor you know, trying to evaluate uh, a patient without uh, having access to their vitals, you know, without doing an x-ray, like you need to be able to see what's going on in the system to be able to make intelligent interventions. And so we, uh, first thing we did was we, we built this, uh, this energy data set. Um, it currently contains all different fuel types. Uh, in terms of the grid network, we have substations, transmission towers, buses, uh, high voltage lines. Um, you can zoom in and click on all that stuff to get uh, uh, information about each individual feature. 
Um, and then we have uh, EV charging stations, hydrogen power plants or hydrogen storage plants, and then also uh, increasingly battery storage plants as well. Um, so that data set is kind of at the core of, of our software. And then on top of that, we've built a, a workflow platform that basically enables a project developer to manage all of their tasks, files and financials, as well as explore the data set simultaneously. So it's kind of a, it's an all-in-one uh, dashboard that enables a project developer to do everything that they need to do, but uh, online in the cloud in collaboration with, with uh, whomever they choose to involve in, in their portfolio. So is it providing real-time sensor data from these points on, on the map? So in a hundred and some odd countries, you basically have internet of things kind of or control data for, for all these devices so you can see what's happening or is it just saying what's there? Uh, it's just saying what's there. It's it's much more like uh, Google Maps. So um, okay. the, the interface itself actually looks a lot like Google Maps and is also searchable in a similar way. So it, it looks like Google Maps, but it's got, instead of just having... Um, uh, topographical data and information about different building uh, rural features in a particular city or, or region. It also has the entire grid network mapped. Uh, it has all the power stations mapped. Uh, and and overlaying increasingly, the, and the, the physical map then. That's right. Overlaid on, on the on the physical map. And it's all clickable and searchable. So it's, it's kind of like Google Maps for energy in a way. You can zoom in. You can see exactly what's going on in a particular subset of the network. You can click around on, on all the different features of the network and see who owns what, you know, what the capacity is of a particular feature. Um, you know, if there are any potential competitors or, or, um, or partners that you might work with on a, on a particular site. So it, it is literally just making uh, the system uh, transparent and visible for the first time. So is this um, for, for a developer, is, is the software even for, for, for larger developers or smaller? Or is there any differentiation here if, uh, in terms of size of the development? You know, so some of the larger ones have all the resources they need and some of them might not. And do you see any differentiation or is this really an asset for all of them? Uh, we're mainly targeting the sort of commercial, uh, smaller to mid cap developers with the software. And that doesn't just include, it doesn't just include developers themselves, but also includes uh, anyone who's investing uh, in development or mm -hmm. in construction. Um, so our target market are basically mid cap, um, you know, distributed generation players that uh, are involved in the distributed market. Super large, you know, offshore offshore wind farms or uh, really massive utility scale solar arrays. Um, you can, they can use the software to to manage those projects, but uh, really the the software is built for volume. So if you've got um, a pipeline of let's say thirty to a hundred projects uh, that you're trying to evaluate and you're trying to, you know, uh, figure out what your what your your top five projects are going to be, and, and filter those down, and, and focus all of your team and your tasks on uh, bringing those projects forward. Our tool is incredibly useful for that, and then uh, it also enables you to interface with all the different stakeholders uh, stakeholders you need along the life cycle, uh, which includes investors as well. Um, if you're an investor with a portfolio of projects uh, and you're investing in development and construction, you can also use the software for for your portfolio management. So, so out of interest, um, we've had on the show a bit in terms of maturity on digital. Uh, you know, some countries are ahead, some countries are might lacking a little bit behind some regions, etc. Do you see adoptions of software? Because I, I, I assume this has been done manually before in one way or the other. And then, no. do you see any any differences between 
regions of adopting to this kind of software because it's fairly new. Uh, this is a new way of working. Is, do you see any differences between regions? It's a really good question. Uh, there's definitely cultural differences in, um, in the attitude towards software. Um, US market tends to be the most, most bullish. Uh, we have a lot of interest from US developers uh, and portfolio managers. Um, I don't want to kind of, you know, try and talk about Europe in a single breath because Europe is, is 26 different nations, um, with very different cultures. Um, but, um, uh, within Europe, we do see the investment community being pretty switched on when it comes to software and increasingly developers are, are embracing software tools as well. And the one thing that has sped all of this up is, is COVID. So, you know, having, having to continue to push your pipeline forward and continue to move projects forward. Uh, remotely has been a huge challenge for project managers everywhere. And uh, they're increasingly turning towards software. Um, so, you know, what you find in the industry is, you know, Microsoft Teams is ubiquitous. Um, you know, uh, virtual data room providers like Dropbox are, are pretty often used. Everyone uses Excel for all sorts of, of good reasons and, and bad. I mean, Excel gets used in all sorts of ways that Excel was never meant to be used for and email as well. Um, so increasingly, we're just kind of saying, you know, this is a tool that you can use to kind of, you know, help you stop sending so many emails. Uh, maybe you can get off Dropbox because that wasn't really built for us anyway. Um, you don't really need to use Microsoft Excel as a project management tool. You can just use it for your cash flows and integrate your cash flows with our system and then use our, our system to manage your teams uh, and your and your tasks and your schedules. So, um, you know, the... The approach, I guess, has been kind of uh, has been kind of ad hoc. Um, you know, project developers, uh, to their to their credit, have not had purpose built software designed specifically for their their market. So they're kind of reaching around, just grabbing whatever they can get, um, and and that tends to be the norm um, when it comes to uh, workflow. So. How big is the market? I'm mean, obviously the CEO of a company you started, so you've done market studies. Hmm. What is the market like? How, is are we at a stage where there's still not consolidation, lots and lots of small projects kicking off, or is it kind of in like agriculture where we've consolidated a few huge conglomerates that, that you know are building big, big big farms? I mean, where where are we in the stage of the energy business for renewables right now? And then what's what's the size of pipeline of folks that would be using this kind of a platform? That's a fun question. So. Um Interestingly, renewables, because of the nature of the resource, uh, it's really hard to vertically integrate um, you know, a renewables business because renewables is inherently distributed. So uh, you generate uh, and consume power on site. So the distributed nature of the industry means that even if large players want to try and consolidate, they're still at the, at the behest of local players because it's the local uh, person or local trust or local organization that owns the land or the asset where the where the solar or wind farm is being built. Um, so because of that, uh, smaller players will always kind of hold the keys to the market. Um, and the distributed nature of renewables means that you know it's it's boom time. Uh, you know, new companies are cropping up all the time to do development. Commercial real estate is increasingly looking at how they can get in on the game. Oil and gas are under pressure to start pivoting and diversifying their portfolios and, and doing more renewables. So it is kind of a feeding frenzy at the moment, and we're fully poised to, to capitalize on that. Um, the interesting thing as well, I guess, is that um, from a kind of volume point of view, we do see that, that larger projects, uh, while they tend to be 
you know, um, the ones that are more visible because they get more press are not really the norm. Uh, it's the mid cap market that seems to be accelerating. Uh, and that's simply because, you know, um, there are more opportunities uh, in, in the smaller cap space. Um, you know, the larger uh, opportunities quickly get identified and developed by the larger players. Um, but the, the volume, the scale for the market is, uh, is kind of in the mid cap range. What defines mid cap in terms of, I don't know, euros? Capacity. Like what, yeah, capacity. Okay. So what, what size projects mid cap then? Yeah, so a mid-cap project, so it'd be different from solar wind. A mid-cap project in solar would be sort of anything above 100 kilowatts, you know, 100 kilowatts up to 20, 30 megawatts of solar is kind of mid-cap. Beyond that, you get more into sort of utility scale. And then for wind, it could be a megawatt all the way up to 20 or 30 megawatts. Um, so if it's if it's a million dollars a megawatt, then you're looking sort of between, you know, one and $30 million for a project. Um, maybe slightly larger if you've got some kind of hybrid solution where you've got storage on site. Um, so... Uh, I don't want to anticipate where the conversation is going to go, but the, there's another interesting piece to this, which is who's taking development risk on the investment side. Um, and that's also something that we, we talk about a lot uh, at Anion. So you come across, a, you mentioned a little bit in terms of the, the mid cap on the small one, which if I understand it correctly, we're starting to see quite a few, let's call them new um, players on the market with mm-hmm none or limited knowledge around uh, energy. If you're real estate, you might have focus somewhere else. Uh, how, how is it to work with these guys? Um, you know, Traditionally, you had the big utilities. They know what they do. They have done this for, this is their living. And suddenly now you have a, a new branch, which are branching out into something new. And Do you see any differences, positive or, or even challenging? <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, you, you will definitely have um, project developers, project managers who have been in the business for 10, 20 years who will tell you that, you know, the way they do it is the best way. Um, and there are lots of different uh, project methodologies that project developers pursue. And, um, you know, a lot of that stuff you can't automate. Um, so, you know, the, the software that we've built is uh, designed to allow a sophisticated project development firm to adapt their process to the cloud um, rather than trying to impose some kind of process upon them. That said, uh, we offer templates for new entrants. So if you want a sort of custom built, uh, ready to go template for a solar PV or wind project at commercial scale, um, we have that in the, in the software. So um, if you're a uh, if you're wanting to do a solar project and create that very quickly, you just click the solar template and it gives you a pre-populated data room with all the different folders and subfolders that uh, adhere to a, a typical due diligence process. It gives you a schedule set up with a list of tasks of things that you will inevitably need to get done. Um, and then it gives you KPIs on the financial reporting dashboard and, and the technical KPIs as well that you would need to configure to track the project along the life cycle. So, uh, we try and um, we try and give new entrants uh, a leg up, you know, a kind of best practice structure to get started quickly, while giving the more sophisticated players the flexibility to um, basically use the software to to um, to run their own process. And then, so the investor would use the data. How are they looking at it? So, if you're an investor, you've got some new entrants coming in. They they've convinced me that they're 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 their project's a good project. 
So what visibility do they have? What kind of dashboards or what are they looking at that's different than me actually running the project? Yeah, so um, we've got a, a three-tier hierarchy on the system. So it's, um, you know, project developers are, are also paranoid. You know, they want to make sure that you know, they they have total control over who sees what and when. And that's that's absolutely fundamental. Like, you need to have a lot of control over who sees what and when so that you can manage the project efficiently. Um, that's one of the pitfalls of using more generalist tools like uh, Microsoft Teams to manage your your team or, um, you know, Dropbox to manage your, uh, your external file sharing is that you can very quickly lose track of stuff. Uh, and then you don't really know who has access to what. Um, so that's all, that's all, uh, fundamental to, to the process. Um, so when it comes to investors, uh, we know that project developers need to potentially pitch different investment models to different investors, you know, horses for courses, as they say up in, in Scotland. So, uh, in order to do that, um, we have uh, a guest uh, feature where you can add an investor as a guest and they will only see the financial side of the dashboard that you share with them. And if you want to create multiple dashboards and link those to multiple cash flow models and share those out with different guest investors, you can do that. So um, they don't see anything else that's going on in the day-to-day, but they get uh, immediate access to the, the KPIs basically that you're sharing with them in the model. So, so how is your platform transforming the industry? So what, what's different now that you're, you're out there, you're, you're three years in, so you've got customers on your platform. Yep. Um, what's transformative? What, I mean, what's different now? If I, if I was three years ago and I look at it today, how's my experience different? So the one thing we're really looking at uh, internally, and just to be totally clear, we've only, this software has only been live in the market for about a month. Uh, so we've been in stealth mode, sort of I mean, developing software for the last three years. But um, yeah, the product's been uh, been launched and is out in the market just now. Uh, and we do have early customers. But um, what the one thing that we're tracking is, um, you know, our, our whole ambition is to make projects move faster. So the question, of course, is, you know, first of all, how do you know that you're making projects move faster? And, and secondly, how do you know that by using the software, uh, uh, projects have moved faster versus using uh, you know, the ad hoc approach? Um, so we have super granular, um, what we call OKRs, objectives and key results, where we're measuring um, basically what uh, what different um, parts of the dashboard are doing on a day to day basis. So you know, uh, my morning, my daily digest is checking in. And we have about fifty companies on the platform. So I wake up in the morning. I have a little dashboard that tells me how many files have been uploaded to data rooms on that day, how many new projects have been created, what kind of projects are they. Um, what, uh, you know, how many new te- team members or users have been added today? Um, you know, how many additional schedules have been created today? So I, I have kind of a, an overview, not of individual user profiles, but of the, the metadata around what people are doing uh, on the system on a day-to-day basis. And that gives me uh, a sort of understanding of, okay, the things seem to be moving uh, in, a, in a particular direction. You could imagine that um, if you're not using the software and you're using email, for example, or using a combination of like email and maybe a a generalist solution um, like Microsoft Projects, you're spending a lot of time configuring, you're spending a lot of time chasing up people for information, spending a lot of time sending emails, um, basically, instead of actually delivering work. Um, You know, a good example is like um, when people used to build software without using Slack. So, um, you know, we're not 
we're not Slack for renewables. I wouldn't say that we're, we're, we're more like Asana for renewables. But um, before Slack, um, you know, people that worked in software used to use, um, you know, more generalist solutions or, or would use, uh, or would use email. So like, you know, you'd be, you'd be sending a lot of emails throughout the day. Um, and that's just a very inefficient way of doing things. Um, so, you know, the, the closer you can get to, um, the ground truth of what's going on and, and the real time interaction of your team with the projects that they've been assigned, uh, the better. And in theory, that should help accelerate things along the life cycle. So, so why now? Why, why, why are you, I mean, people have generally been doing projects for a long time. You're, you, you know, you joined an industry that already was there. I mean, renewables mm. are maturing and they're growing at a, a rapid rate. Uh, why would they start embracing technology now? Because I, I'm comfortable that other people have looked at it and said, Hey, this could be automated as well. So what's different this go around? I think it's a demographic shift. So, um, you know, as, as people uh, from my generation, from your generation, Chris uh, and Johan, you know, people, I think we're all probably don't want to take too much of a stab here, but we all kind of look uh, on the cusp of sort of Gen X, uh, maybe some early Gen Y. Um, but, you know, Gen X, Gen late later Gen Y, um, you know, we grew up with the internet. Um, we look for software to get jobs done. So, um, that demographic shift is definitely taking place uh, in the energy industry. And increasingly, as uh, our generation and the younger generation grow up with, with uh, software for energy, that will become the norm. So, um, you know, we used to do a lot of things back in the day when we were developing projects that we would never do today just because there are tools available now for, to do those things. Um, one of them is, is the access to data. So, um, uh, open energy data, which is kind of an academic geeky uh, space to be involved in, um, has matured. So um, the, one of the things that we do to maintain and grow the data map in the system is we use artificial intelligence. We pull in all of the data sets uh, from public and academic sources on power grid features and power plants. And then we use optical image recognition to validate uh, if those those projects and features uh, actually exist uh, uh, in real life. So um, that was not something that would have been even possible three years ago. So you um, like satellite imagery then, or is, is that when you're saying you're doing optical? So yeah, we use, um, so we use Google API to do the, the matching. So basically um, when you pull, when you pull the data um, from, most data sets, you get it in CSV form. Uh, occasionally, you get it in PDF and you have to rip it out, which is a pain. And we hope, you know, if governments, uh, if people working in departments of energy and, and academia are listening, we hope you will publish your data uh, in CSV um, for, for public consumption because that just makes everyone's life easier. Machine-readable format is always better. But um, once, you, once you pull all that data, um, the challenge then becomes validating it because, you know, just because it's been published on a government website or just because, uh, you know, a, a sophisticated group of academics have created that data set. It doesn't mean that it's correct. So, you know, the one thing we find um, pretty consistently is that coordinates are wrong. So like, or coordinates are off by a little bit. So like, you know, we'll pull a data set from, let's say, uh, I don't know, Sweden. And, uh, you know, we'll see that there's supposed to be, you know, uh, 60 different solar uh projects across you know this one part of sweden and then we'll actually go in and we'll run this matching algorithm that uh, looks at a satellite image <clears throat> and then can see 
if that satellite image matches uh, what's actually in, in the Google Maps API and tells you with a certain degree of accuracy uh, or within, uh, within um, a range, uh, how likely it is that that uh, location actually has a, a solar asset there. Uh, and we can do that for not just solar and wind, but we can do that for basically everything. We can do it for substations. We can do it for transmission towers. Um, we can do it for uh, other types of uh, more conventional assets like nuclear power plants, um, uh, natural gas power plants, coal, uh, and uh, and hydro. Stuff that's less refractory is is more difficult to identify. But um, uh, one of the reasons why, in addition to demographics, uh, software is becoming kind of more common uh, and adopted in the energy sector is just um, because uh, of the trend, um, because software is now available to do this, whereas in the past it, it wouldn't have been. So as a, as a long term, I know you, the product hasn't been out for, for a long period of time. You worked quite a bit on it. It started off as, as a project management tool. I always kind of had the analogy towards AWS. You started off kind of uh, as hmm. the bookshop of, of the internet, and now it's, it's transformed to, to kind of dominating it. You, you're gathering all this data into your platform, both the official data that is available, but also all the projects that comes into us. Surely in, in a matter of time, you, you will have a gold mine uh, of data in terms of deploying renewable energy uh, across. Do you see other opportunities or is that stage two somewhere else? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I guess uh, it's, it's one of the things that's interesting is to see, uh, you know, what people want in, in addition to what's already there. So um, one of the big things that keeps coming up is, is uh, climate risk. So increasingly, you know, climate variables um, impact, uh, impact the grid. Um, so one of the things we're looking at doing at the moment in, uh, in cooperation with uh, a large insurance company uh, is uh, adding additional uh, climate risk variables into the map so that you can see areas of, of potential flood and fire risk um, on top of the other data sets I've mentioned. Um, so that's one area that, uh, that increasingly seems to be of interest to all the different stakeholders that we, that we work with. Yeah. So you, you described a kind of one stop shop is I think the way your, your kind of intro was, you know, make it easy yeah. for the developer, have everything there. Um, but you know, being a software guy myself and, and being in the energy industry, uh, one of the things that's really important is open APIs and um, you know, using things that allow us to focus on our core competence, but yet rely on data and transfer data between platforms or between services uh, very quickly and easily yeah. so that there's there's not a lot of development cycle because you, know, you have a RESTful API, I have a RESTful API, and we can send things back and forth. So are you planning on developing or joining an ecosystem? And if so, what are the softwares that are most tangential to you? What would be the most logical things for you to touch other than perhaps this insurance app, which might give you some climate risk and some of the, the land and, and, and geospatial information you've already described? What are the other tangential softwares? It's a good question. Uh, so at the moment, we do have an API that uh, allows uh, third parties to access all the data sets that we have. Uh, we do charge for it. It's not open, um, but we have to cover our costs. So that's the reason for that. But if, if people are interested in just accessing the data um, independently of our platform, uh, we can enable them to do that. Um, the second part of your question was, so what, what, software what other integrations? 
Yeah. yeah so um, uh, at the moment, we have three integrations uh, that are about to be released. One is with Microsoft Excel Online. Another one is with Smartsheet. And another one is with Microsoft Teams. Um, so at the moment, we don't really do anything that those three tools do, but those three tools get used uh, pretty frequently in our market, um, obviously for financial modeling and, and cash flow management, uh, and then also for collaboration when it comes to setting up meetings and having calls. Um, so uh, those are the three main ones for us, um, Smartsheet, Excel Online, and, and Teams. The, the really exciting thing about the integration with Excel Online and, and Smartsheet is that um, this should actually help the, the financial modelers a lot and make their lives a lot easier because you can you can basically just push and pull metrics from your from your uh, cloud-based cash flow model um, into our reporting dashboard. And if you change those metrics at any point, they will change on the dashboard. Um, so we're not trying to, I know there's some software companies out there that are saying they're going to replace Excel. Um, we're looking at Excel and saying, there's, ne there's never going to be anything more amazing than Excel for most people, right? Excel does do a lot of uh, a lot of things very well, and in our industry, Excel is is going to be pretty hard to compete with. Um, so we're saying use Excel just like you're doing. Use it in the cloud, and uh, you know push and pull your metrics to this reporting dashboard, and then you'll never have to look at PowerPoint ever again. Um, and if you want to bring someone in to help you with your financial modeling, and you want them to you know pitch your project, you can totally do that. So. The system we didn't we haven't talked about consultants or advisors yet, but the system is also very friendly to to consultants. So, in terms of yeah, sorry, going away a little bit, uh, shifting focus uh, away from 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 the actual platform and and the things that you um, uh, develop. Uh, I did a little bit of pre pre work on 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 the show pre research and. One thing that we've had on this show before, we have a lot of the investment uh, talks, and I'm not sure if I'm seeing it right, but I see more and more of the new leaders in energy are now also starting to support, invest, and looking at driving the, this kind of energy sustainable transformation also in other areas. Mm -hmm. uh, I read that you're the co-lead of this Green Investment Forum. I think that's the way I see that is almost like an example of, of this trend. Usually, you, the the energy industry was isolated in their own companies. They did everything within the companies. Now it feels a little bit like we're sharing a little bit more. We open up the ecosystems and we're pushing a little bit more uh, to support other companies. Is that a fair fair analogy or what, a, a part of this change? It is. I mean. So you're both on LinkedIn, you know, uh, we're connected to a lot of people in this industry. I always feel like my LinkedIn channel is, uh, is, you know, uh, is rose colored glasses. Um, I think what's actually happening in the market is that uh, projects are continuing to not find investment. Uh, there's huge capital commitments, but the, the folks that are interested in investing can't find the projects they need to, to fit their models uh, and to justify the investment. And so increasingly, um, what we would really love to see happen uh, are institutional investors, you know, climbing up the risk curve and getting involved earlier on in, in the project lifecycle. Uh, and that's something that's a huge challenge. Um, but if you look at so you know, depending on what forecast you believe, you know, if it's Bloomberg New Energy Finance or the IEA or IRENA um, or BP, you know, depending on what forecast you believe, it looks like. Um, the amount of capital that's expected to be deployed into uh, clean infrastructure by 2050 is around 
forty trillion dollars. Um, that's a that's a huge number. But then if you look at uh, the amount of money that we're supposed to deliver into clean infrastructure by 2050 to meet the Paris Climate Accords, it's about $130 trillion. So there's a, there's a $90 trillion gap um, in you know, what is expected to be delivered in the best case scenario versus what needs to be delivered to stop our planet from uh, imploding. Um, that's a significant gap. And I just don't see how you know we're going to be able to to deliver unless institutional investors get more comfortable with the risk profile of, of renewable projects earlier on. Um, so one of the things that, that we talk about in the Green Investment Forum and one of the things that, um, that we talk about with our investors, we have investors um, on our cap table who are you know, ex-Goldman, ex-oil traders. Uh, some of them worked in, in infrastructure for, for investment banks. And one of the conversations we're always having is, well, you know, what do institutionals need? In terms of data points to be able to get more comfortable uh you know taking construction risk uh or even taking development risk in in projects um and that has to be the topic of conversation on everyone's agenda going forward because if if the capital demand is not met by bankable project deal flow then there's just no point um you know if you can't get these projects to adhere to to the due diligence models that uh that institutionals require then they will not attract investment, and you know pension holders don't want to see their their uh, their pension returns reduced or or derailed because you know suddenly there's a green agenda, and uh, that means that you know your pension is yielding three or four percent less uh, per quarter than it was when there wasn't a green agenda. So you know these projects have to make money, and they need to make money. Uh, uh, you know they need to fit the the due diligence models of of the key players. An interesting you- pension fund um, just. For a case study, um, the Canadian Pension Plan or CPP uh, are doing some interesting stuff in this space, and, and listeners might be interested in, in checking them out. Um, yeah. They've got a strategic plan for for climbing the risk curve and, and getting um, involved earlier on in in, um, in projects from a from an equity perspective, and uh, they're doing that through collaboration with uh, with mid cap project development teams. Yeah, which was actually a little bit my, my 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 question around this. Are we seeing? Are we in status quo still, or do we see development on this? You know, we had a guest on previously talking about the CO two prices in terms of where everyone stalled quite a bit, mm. and suddenly now <laughs> it's catch up time, and it'll be interesting to see then if the financial is the same. You know, are we? Because sooner or later there's a financial gain on this as well. But I guess yeah. to to be followed. Yeah, I mean, you know. Pension funds have gone into more conventional infrastructure in the past, and yeah. you know, we, the renewables need to, a big risk, to yeah. rise to the challenge. They need to yeah. adopt standards and and rise to the challenge. And I think once they do that, then um, you know institutional investors will be plowing capital into into development, hopefully. But do you think it's just because it's early in the game? I mean, you know, granted, you have a clock running, or the world has a clock running, and and, and, and you know, the the end game is the end game. Uh, yeah. But I mean, these things don't tend to happen overnight, right? I mean, the inertia needs to take place. They need to see successful projects. They, there, there's a bunch of things you talked about: standards. You know, there, there's, there's, you know, a learning curve. Um, so, is it just that it's projected based on what we know today, or is is it likely that you know a year or two from now, and you start seeing some successful projects and taking models that you can cookie cut or roll over it again and again, you can start scaling? I mean, what, what's your thought there? 
so tough, right? Because the the cookie cutter model when it comes to renewables is is kind of a myth. I mean, every project um, has its own unique dynamics, uh, and every project is different. Um, and you your policy can quantify regimes the risk, though, right? I mean, you you can quantify. Yeah different risk, whether it's landowner risk, whether it's it's risk from the environment, whether it's risk from, I don't know, the local grid, whatever whatever the, the risks are, I would think over time, you could categorize and qualify each of those elements and put them into models that then work, that sure. then I can develop an investment strategy based on a model, right? And even though sure. I might have 15 variables that change from site to site, I, I would think that there's enough commonality that I could cookie cut in that sense, right? Maybe not exactly no two sites are the same, but the principles ought to be the same, right? The fundamentals. Maybe For sure. I don't understand. Okay. No, no, that's that's 100% correct. Um, so that's, you know, you see that in the US market. Um, increasingly, you see that in Europe, to an extent, um, you know, you see very sophisticated project development firms being able to increasingly roll out um, projects at scale in, in a similar range. Um, one of my favorite examples is is C two Energy Capital, uh, which was uh, which was a, a project development business run by by Richard Dover and, and his co founders in New York. Um, they recently got acquired by by um, EDP Renewables, um, but they they were able to achieve that. Um, they were rolling out sort of uh, rooftop solar in a sort of seven hundred kilowatt to one point two one point three megawatt range in cooperation with um, with you know retailers, stadiums, um, sort of large commercial asset owners with big vacant roof space, um, and through a very diligent uh, and and very hardworking team uh, with good backers, they were able to kind of cookie cut and roll projects out. I think the the case studies are out there. Um, it's just a matter of people looking in the right place and and seeing what what is possible. Um, and you know the U.S. market is dynamic and, and diverse in its own right. It doesn't have a national or integrated grid network, so to be able to do that in lots of different states, which they did, um, is is pretty impressive. And so, yeah, you would think that uh, you know sooner rather than later we would see sort of common adherence to a particular model or set of models that that tends to work. Um, so, but, does your day job help that then? The, the platform that you release from your company sounds like you're you're trying to normalize what can be and, and provide the, the the thought points at least, right? You, you sounded like you had an outline of the workflow that you would recommend looking at. Yeah. So it would seem that as your product matures, so if you're at 1.0 right now or virtual 1.0, whatever your product number is, but yeah. um, it would, I, I'd assume that over the next year or two that your corpus of data just gets better and better. And then just by having your 50 users turn into 100 users or 50 users for 12, 24, 36 months, that the, the knowledge and experience would, would grow rather exponentially. Yeah, um, that's the dream. I mean, it would be awesome to see, you know, our tool being used um, as a best practice tool. Um, the one thing that we've been very careful not to do is, is try and impose any kind of standardization on, on the market because we know that project developers are very proprietary about their process. Um, and that that's based on experience and, you know, we don't want to intrude on that. But, um, as I was saying to Johan earlier, um, you know, the, the system is flexible, so you can, you can start a project from a template, um, and use that template, which has a, a best practice model built into it. Um, you can choose to ignore that template and, and create your own model, or you can choose to, to use that template and tweak it. You can tailor it to, to your own model. So increasingly, we're looking at uh, addressing that through templates. Um, at the moment, we have a solar PV and a wind template 
um, but we want to segment those into different uh, different levels of project, different scales of project. We want to have templates that enable hybrid um, models to be built. We want to have templates for other project types like storage, uh, which is one we're working on at the moment. EV charging is another one we're looking at looking at at the moment. So, um, yeah, that's that would that would be the dream um, if you know we could say uh, to the market, um, you know, if you're, if you're not using any to do this, then you're not doing this the right way. Um, that would be great. Uh, certainly at the moment, you know, if you're not doing stuff online, if you're not using software, uh, to drive your, your process, if you're not using data to drive your process, then you're going to be inefficient. You're going to be slow. You're going to be behind the curve. Um, you're probably going to be spending a lot of money in development that, uh, that you might not otherwise be spending. You might have extra well, hires that you don't need. What gives your customers competitive advantage, right? So the reason you would keep that proprietary information close to the vest is for whatever your magic formula you think is going to be more profitable than, than tipping someone else off, or maybe my time to market is going to be quicker or whatever my, my yeah. logic would be there. So if everyone starts using a common tool, does, does that change that a little bit? Or how do you, how do you remain that competitive? Is it just the geography at that point that you're, you know, whoever tied up the land first is, has the competitive advantage because you know, you, you're probably not going to have two wind farms in the same spot or, you know, is it whoever gets the market first and, and get, delivers the energy? I mean, how is that going to work? And so much of, of project uh, success is determined by yield, right? So you, know, you have your models and you have your, your approach and then you have reality. Um, and so increasingly, you know, those who are, are good at, um, you know, designing projects which are which actually yield or get close to yielding what they were forecasted to yield are the winners, and um, that's increasingly the case in a in a market where you have increased competition and, and falling costs. Um, so you know there are tools that can be used to to help augment that process uh, that are separate from any um, you know uh, feasibility modeling tools um, like PV Sys for example um, can get can get used to help determine uh, you know to produce more more uh, rapid and reliable solar forecasts. Um, so software definitely has a role to play there as well. I know um, DeepMind uh, have been working on trying to predict the wind. Um, so they started with uh, with protein folds uh, and now they're looking at trying to predict the wind, uh, you know, using, using uh, super powered AI. Um, so, you know, that's obviously something that's gonna be harder with, with climate destabilization, but um, yeah, you know, uh, outside of, of uh, being really, really good at, at um, you know, using data to drive your, your yield forecasting and then actually building a project that yields what it's expected to, uh, competition is driven by uh, who you know, um, you know, what kind of opportunities you can get access to before anyone else. Uh, and then, you know, your skill, uh, your adroitness as a developer and being able to, you know, lead a team towards towards objectives. It's really uh, very human in that sense. And so, um, you know, what software can enable, can, what our software can enable you to do is, is to do all the things you're already good at doing, but to do them online, um, which, you know, saves you a lot of driving around, saves you from sending emails, sends you from having to make extra phone calls, um, you know, all those, all those little time wasting things that you, you know, may not even realize you're, you're, are taking up half your day. Are, are sort of little jobs to be done that we can eliminate. Um, so, uh, yeah, going forward, we hope to make uh, great project developers even better and, and new project developers uh, get a leg up on market knowledge faster. So we're running 
out of time. Uh, as always, we, we can't stop. It's, it's always difficult. <laughs> we, we probably have a hundred more questions, but we don't have the time, unfortunately. As a next final time. question, absolutely next time. But as a final question, uh, I've been thinking about this since you opened the show. Uh, being uh, living in Scotland now as an expat, uh, the ambitious goals of Scotland to 2030 of being fully renewable, where are they? Are they reaching oh, they, it? They've met it. They've met that oh, goal. Cool. <laughs> uh, they, they did it last year. Already. Yeah. All right. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah. They say Scotland's uh, competitive advantages are the three W's, uh, wind, water, and whiskey. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> Great to have you on, Philip. Fantastic. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me on, guys. Yeah, it's been great to have you on the show. I, I you know, I just my, my final thoughts would be so. So you you went from the excitement of you know, you know, project, you know building these projects or taking on these projects to building a company. Uh, the job description you talked about in the beginning sounded a lot like the job description of a CEO. Uh, pretty much, you know, a little bit MacGyver mm. along the way. Um, yeah. How do you like the change? Do you, are you enjoying what you're doing right now? Has it been fun to get to the point you're at? Definitely. It's been a ton of fun. Um, technology startups are incredibly hard. Um, and so it hasn't been without extreme challenges. But um, the one thing I love the most, I guess, about this job is um, working with software engineers. So my previous job, I worked a lot with civil engineers, you know, uh, hard hats, people that go on site and, and actually build stuff in the built environment. Uh, but working with software engineers is a totally different thing. Um, and what we try and do at, at any end is bridge those two cultures. So, um, you know, we need software engineers to understand what civil engineers do. And we need civil engineers to understand what software engineers do. Um, so that's, that's a lot of fun. Um, and I get to tell a lot of stories. So I've got a lot of stories from my project development <laughs> days, uh, that after a couple of years are pretty funny. So, um, we try and, we try and communicate, uh, through, through stories and through experiences and, you know, try and, try and, um, give engineers uh, on both sides insight into what the other world experiences on a day-to-day -day basis. So that's the thing I love most. Well, cool. Well, I'm, I'm glad you uh, shared a bit of your story with us today. It's, it's been fun, uh, the journey, hearing about the, the company you've built, a little bit about where the industry's at. Uh, I'm not convinced that I got the answer uh, to my opening thought is, you know, are we going to get the critical mass we need and, and are there enough tools? So, so I certainly heard you describe tools that would make things more efficient, incrementally improving the process. Uh, but I, I don't know how we get that $90 trillion gap filled yet. Uh, you know, I, 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 I wait to see the breakthrough in technology that helps to that. It is exciting to, to hear about some of the tangential software and the amount of data available and people leveraging the data to do creative things. That, that's always an exciting time. So thank you so much for being our guest today. It's been a pleasure, guys. Uh, look forward to the next time. And thanks a lot. Thank you. And once again, to our audience, you spent another hour listening to Insider's Guide to Energy. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed the show. If you've yet to subscribe, please subscribe. If you have friends that want to hear the show, please recommend the show. And don't miss our newest podcast, Stories. Our second edition should be out by the time you hear this show. So we hope you enjoy that podcast as well. Thank you.